decades of poor research, a broken peer review system, false health and nutrition doctrines, inadequate regulation, and a culture dominated by powerful vested financial interests have combined to make the world's supermarkets into minefields of bad information and products that put our health, our lives, and our planet at risk. It's time to see beyond the two-for-one offers, the health aura products, and the shiny false promises on every shelf. It's time to let the real healing begin. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody and this Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and this the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. Hi, today I'm excited to welcome author and nutrition educator and activist Sally Fallon Morell, along with the legendary researcher Dr. Mary Enig. Sally is the author of what many consider to be one of the foundational classics of the real food movement, Nourishing Traditions. Today we'll focus on what was happening in America and England in the late 1800s and the first half of the 20th century as the groundwork was being laid for the damaged nutritional guidance and food supply system we see manifested globally in supermarkets today. We'll be discussing the absolutely blockbuster story of the way in which real food began to be replaced by dangerous imitation foods in the early 20th century as we begin to get a grasp on the extent to which modern humanity has been swindled out of good nutrition, starting with the devastating loss of healthy natural fats from the average diet. We'll also explore in some detail the results of the amazing research project undertaken by Weston A. Price in the 1930s and 40s, and the important connections he was able to establish between not only our diets and our health, but even the link between our looks and the diets of our parents. If you want your future children to like what they see in the mirror, you probably need to hear this. So let's get into it. My recent discussion with Sally Fallon Morell, the importance of real nutrition, natural fats, and is corporate greed what's really behind the destruction of the health of entire generations in this episode called Food Capitalism 101. Sally, I want to welcome you. Thank you so much for joining me here. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, it's interesting you use that word capitalism because we definitely need capitalism as an economic system for airplanes, cars, computers, that kind of thing. But it, but we don't. It's not the right model for food because when big capital gets involved in food, the nutritional value goes down. It has to, or, or they can't make money on it. And we need a different model for our food, just like I think we need a different model for our public utilities and possibly even for national resources. But this it's folly to think we need the same economic model for every aspect of the economy. I couldn't agree more. I, what I want to, uh, that's absolutely right. There's the economic model behind food is what is driving the, um, what we call the supermarket right now. And it is driving a huge amount of ill health. As you know, Sally, yes. I think more than anybody, uh, I could possibly talk to. I just want to step out to this because I'm a brand strategist by trade. So I've actually spent my life working on a lot of these big brands that are in the oh, supermarket. Gosh. Almost, oh. <laughs> almost <laughs> anybody out there, certainly if you're in a, a developed nation, uh, you'll find that you've probably got something in the cupboard that where I've either worked on that brand or I've worked with the company that produces it. So I have a, a very great personal interest uh, in trying to uh, heal what I see uh, and have seen from the inside over decades as a very, very damaged system and a system that's very disconnected from reality, from health and from nutrition. So in my brand strategist way, I kind of want to just lift this out to the 100-foot level. I want to go back a couple hundred years just very briefly and sort of create this context for our discussion and I'm probably missing some bits and pieces, but in my own thinking, I see these three great big drivers that started to take place. 
One was the Industrial Revolution, right there in the mid-18th century, which uh, started to create urbanisation. It certainly facilitated the development of food processing. Um, and it, that kind of food processing that it, it facilitated was about denaturing food. Alongside of that, I see empire building was another big part of what was going on. Uh, the, certainly the British were out there, the Europeans were out there, they were getting on ships and they were travelling long distances and they needed to store food. And while they were empire building, not only were they storing food, they were developing new resource bases and ultimately I think they realised that they were developing new markets for what they were selling. And alongside of this, Roughly at the same time, uh, science was moving into this era, which, it, uh, in my opinion, Sally, it hasn't come out of, and that is the era of mechanistic mechanistic reductionism, yes. which yes. is that view for anyone out there who who's not familiar with it. It's that view that everything can be reduced to components, and that there's no synergy, there's no greater synergy that emerges from uh, all of the parts. Uh, being more than just the sum of those parts. So that, that mechanistic reductionism in science f fed through into nutrition and medicine and it, those things are still, in my opinion, extremely damaged areas and that, has, that, that allowed, I think, the processing of food and the denaturing of foods for long storage to take place and with some support from a, a growing research and medical community. And all of this was being done in a, in a, in a, an environment in which capitalism was emerging and the notion that everything was about profit. So the supermarket, I think, is really what we have today is kind of like the, the modern version of the company store. <laughs> Where, <laughs> yes, right, yes. where we don't really buy food, we buy provisions. <laughs> yeah. And also I think uh, people or most people are separated from the farm today. Or, well, now we have ways of connecting back to farms that we didn't have before. And also um, most people don't cook. Now that's been deliberate to Absolutely. make people think that cooking is a degrading activity, but I don't see many farmers who cook either. Mm. That's you know, and in true. Europe, uh, even today, farming—well, the the best foods, the best food traditions start in the farming communities, and that's not happening here. That's true. I, I mean, Sally, in general terms, do you sort of agree with that overview? As yes, I, I do. It out I there? do. Uh -huh. yes. Yeah. So it really separated us from our traditional roots because that whole – what I see is this um, – that industrial revolution is what we're still seeing playing out in our lives with these um, – everything is industrialized. Our lives are industrialized. And so that has played out into the – into uh, these sort of stores that we now go to rather than growing our own food, rather than – uh, having food more available at a community level, as you say, being connected to our own traditions of eating, that uh, that was all industrialized. It's it's yeah. a totally it, industrial process now. And also, there was a lot of propaganda that went along with it to make. I mean, I someone once told me, well, we thought it was patriotic to buy these processed foods. Oh, how so, interesting! Yes, we thought it was patriotic, and we also thought that our duty was to spend as little as possible on food. So the idea of good quality expensive food became kind of radical, you know, like communism or something. Oh, so that really would have come about with the two world wars and the yes, Great yes, Depression absolutely. in the midst of it. And, you know, during that time, that is such a critical time, that window, because at that time we have the – really the emergence in a very large way of big brands and yes. we have this phenomenally important work that was produced by Western A. Price and I think that uh, the 
I, I talk to many people in the course of a week and it surprises me. There are people who know Weston A. Price immediately and are very passionate about uh, his work. And then there are people who've just never heard of it. There's nobody in the middle. <laughs> There's nobody who's heard of it. It's iffy. Everybody uh, either knows it or or doesn't. But I'd really like to talk, Sally, a little bit about what West, who he was and what he discovered and, you know, the era that he was in. Well, yes, uh, he's really key to our understanding here. He um, did his work in the 20s and 30s. Oh, excuse me, 30s and 40s. He was a dentist and he's traveled throughout the world looking at so-called primitive people to try to answer the question, what is a healthy diet? And his benchmark was their teeth. If they had excellent teeth, that means no cavities, no uh, crowding, he called that dental deformities, uh, that was a sign to him that these people were healthy. And then he looked at their foods. And he did his work at just the right time because this is when the world was in transition the processed foods were reaching these remote areas, and he could see exactly what was happening. For example, in the isolated Swiss village where he went in 1931, had no real contact with the outside world. The only thing brought in was salt. They uh, lived on dairy products and a little bit of uh, animal foods, meat, and um, bread that they made, and everything was made right there. There were no food stores in this village. Mm. But as soon as the villages became connected by roads, the food stores appeared. And people were no longer growing their own food or processing their own food. They were buying from the food stores. And the food stores were filled with the displacing foods of modern commerce, as he called them. They no longer drank raw milk or their own raw cheese or ate their own bread uh, or even their own meat. Everything was brought into the stores and they bought right. it. Right. It's very, it's actually fascinating because as you say, that moment in history is this unique snapshot. We can't go back now and do this again. Right. Yes. Well, I'm sure that there are some remote places where you can still find people eating their traditional diets. But my husband tells the story of being in the rainforest and they came to a campground and these people were hunting and, and living, you know, mostly off the land, but he said the first thing he noticed on the ground was a can, uh, you know, an old can of sardines and a soda pop bottle. So oh, my goodness. Even, even there, <laughs> this remote place, yeah. they were getting, um, sardines are okay, but the, the soda pop bottle was definitely not. I totally agree. I've been um, out literally shooting commercials, TV commercials in Africa. I spend a lot of time working in Africa, and the big brands are very active in oh, Africa. And, yes, and, and the worst, the worst of the big brands. Because oh, very not, much so. This, people aren't buying them so much here, but the spreads and the margarines and the cooking oils, uh, which are declining in sales here, that they're being pushed in Africa and Asia. It's really quite sickening. They were even then, and you know, I I want to in a second we'll talk about uh, brands like Crisco and the changes that they brought about. I think in in perception of uh, processed food in the early twentieth century. But in uh, Africa, I worked on a brand well known over there. That's a, a vegetable a solid vegetable fat brand called Kimbo. Yes. And I've been out in the middle of nowhere shooting TV commercials and there are people living what appear to be very traditional lives, but they've got cans of Kimbo. Yes. yes. <laughs> this terrible hydrogenated vegetable yes. oil fat yes. out there in the middle of nowhere. So the reach of these brands, and this was in the in the eighties that I was mm -hmm. doing this. You know, it's a it, they were already out there and already uh, being used as primary food sources by uh, people who had access to very little else in terms of the modern technological lifestyle so it just the reach of this in the world is absolutely absolutely terrifying i love how western a price just just to sort of finish a thought on him how he noticed that the entire shape of the faces 
of people changed when in a single generation when they when the parents went from eating a traditional diet to uh, eating a, a, a processed food diet yes uh, the first change that came with the introduction of processed foods to and this was to people who'd grown up on real foods was uh, tremendous tooth decay uh, causing uh, a, a lot of suffering because the dentists hadn't gotten there yet, just the yes. bad foods. But then of more concern to him was the fact that the children born after these diets changed looked different from their parents. They had more narrow faces and dental deformities, so they had crowded teeth, overbites, underbites. They were much more prone, well, they became prone to TB. Their parents were not, but they became prone to TB which he thought was the root cause, he thought was a malformation of the lungs. And um, problems with delivery of children, problems with fertility, and then you start to see all the modern chronic diseases. But the most visible sign of that degeneration, and he didn't mince words, it was degeneration, was the narrowing of the face. Right. And of course now we have some excellent research uh, that's out there showing that women who have their children too close together who don't build up their personal nutrition and health between children even now even when great nutrition is is available if you truly look for it um, their second child will have that narrower face so we know that that narrow face and the change in um, how the teeth sit the crowding of teeth the underbites the overbites it happens in the in the same family from first child to second child, and it's based on nutrition. Yes, well, even to, actually today we do see narrow faces in the first child many times. Yes. But you tend to see more and more narrow faces and more health problems with subsequent children, and that's one, because the mother's diet continues to be deficient in many things, and two, because she is not allowing herself to recover between babies. And, you know, there's just no education about this. Women think they can have another baby in another year, in the next year, and be pregnant while they're still nursing the first one. And traditional cultures put time between their babies, by and large, not in all areas of the world, but in Africa and South America and the South Seas. It was considered shameful to have a baby more than once every three years. Yes. And of course, you you couldn't leave your village as you had to live with those people who thought that it was quite shameful what you were doing. Yes, the so power of was, social pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what they did. They waited and they had special foods to prepare them for pregnancy. These foods were really rich foods like fish eggs, shark liver oil, liver, uh, spring butter. And these foods were very high in three important vitamins, A, D, and K, which are absolutely essential for fertility, for avoiding birth defects, for the optimal growth of the fetus, and uh, for the child as well. Yes, I'm a huge fan of A, D, and K, and uh, the the work that's been done over the last few years uh, enlightening us more about vitamin K2 and connecting that back to um, Western A. Price's work has just been phenomenal and I will do a little bit more unpacking of that in future episodes. Yeah, well actually uh, it was the Western A. Price Foundation who's done the most work on vitamin K2. We're very (laughs) proud of it. It, uh, Dr. Price called it the X factor. He didn't know exactly what it was and we've figured this out. Now there's an explosion of interest in K2, all these new letters talking about it and and very little credit is given back to the Western A. Price Foundation. Well, Western A. Price totally nailed it with the name. I think the X Factor is exactly the right name for it, by the way. <laughs> and, and you know, it, there's very few foods in the supermarket that will give you these vitamins. Yes, even and the butter. I, even Well, actually, we just tested some butter, and it was pretty high in A and D. Uh, and I think that's because they're giving it to the feed. Yeah. So, but still, who's buying butter? You know, that's, first of all, they have to buy the butter if they want to get these vitamins. Absolutely right. Uh, uh, Another thing I want to just cover on uh, Western A. Price is that he traveled the world. He went to so many parts of the world, different cultures, different geographic environments and 
climate. And what he discovered was that it didn't matter what the food traditions were. They all led to, to health. Yes, and whether they were eating seal blubber in frozen north or shark liver in the South Seas or insects in Africa, all of them had high levels of these fat-soluble vitamins in the diet. The diets were nutrient-dense, whatever the particular foods they were eating. And so the solution really was about fat-soluble vitamins in the diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. which is so interesting right. because, yes. you know, let's just now have a little bit of a talk about what started happening to fats in the diet in the early 20th century because yes. bad things started happening. Yes, well, the real turning point was in the late 18, well, in the 1890s when they developed a stainless steel press and its first use was to uh, grind uh, grain and then, you know, to make white bread, separate the flour and everything. But very soon this press was applied to things like cotton seeds and corn to get the oil out of these seeds. And you cannot get oil out of these seeds unless you have this kind of press. So traditional right. cultures were not eating these oils and they are not fit to eat. They come out as a black, sticky, smelly gunk, but they very quickly learn to clean them up by steam cleaning, bleaching, and also to turn these liquid oils into something that resembles lard or butter by the process of partial hydrogenation. So whether these oils are liquid or hydrogenated, they're very bad for you. They knew from very early that the liquid oils cause cancer and you know they knew that there were problems all along. But they, these oils were very cheap to make. They were basically making them out of a waste product, like the cotton seeds. Yeah. And uh, so there was money for advertising, and it was very clever. It was relentless. It started with the publication in 1913 of the story of Crisco, which was a cookbook full of pseudoscience gobbledygook about how these were cleaner and more scientific and easier to digest than lard and had pictures of beautiful young girls teaching their wrinkled grandmothers that they should be using Crisco. Um, they said that if you use Crisco instead oh of God. lard, your children would have better characters. So they knew which buttons to push and urged housewives to make sure their local stores were carrying uh, the Crisco. Well, very shortly, this was the fat, the preferred fat by manufacturers for things like cookies and chips and fried foods, you know, every, pretty much everything and bread um, right. and so forth. Uh, it was the preferred fat because it was cheaper. It was cheaper than absolutely uh, lard or butter and, or coconut oil. And they um, had to find a way of justifying this. And they did it by demonizing the comp competition as being bad for you because it contains cholesterol and saturated fat. And, and basically they said, what doesn't our product have that the competition has not as bad? So it was cholesterol and saturated fat. And this is just pervasive. Even today, people who you think would be very intelligent about this uh, still think that they need to avoid foods containing cholesterol and saturated fat. Uh, well, I, Sally, I'm even today, you know, people can't tell the difference between marketing and real research. There's yes. e even at this moment, marketing yeah. is so advanced. And I think Procter and Gamble and the work that they did on Crisco in terms of marketing as a Machiavellian art, yeah, they exactly achieved. What it was. They achieved great heights. And, of course, over on the other side of the Atlantic, you had the Lever brothers who eventually yes. became Unilever, developing margarine, uh, at, which is a, a very horrific product. Uh, I personally wasn't exposed to it until I was probably uh, 10 or 12 years old uh, in Australia, but um, it was the most horrific thing. If you were used to good butter, yes. as we were when when the, your parents went out and bought that first margarine, everybody sat around thinking, "Oh my God, this is horrible." <laughs> well, their taste buds are soon flattened. <laughs> you know, I'm a cheesemaker, 
uh, we have a farm and we produce really nutrient dense uh, raw cheese, very rich in fat, grass-fed animals, and there is nothing more healthy than a, a cheese like that. It's actually you could live on that cheese and nothing else and be completely nourished. And very often we'll be selling cheese at the farmers market, and someone will come along and taste it, and they say, "Oh, that's delicious!" But my cardiologist would kill me if I ate that cheese. And I feel like saying, if you eat this cheese, you'll be able to go to your cardiologist's funeral. So That's exactly right. And but these are intelligent people, you know. Just, really, that's the value of indoctrination, isn't it, Sally? You've got uh, more than, well, you've certainly got a half a century of indoctrination coming out of the medical world yes. on saturated fats. And then you've got marketing indoctrination going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. The, obviously, there are other well, bad just, foods. Well, just say that the, mar- the, uh, the medical profession is a marketing arm of these uh, industrial fats and oils and you know they're called vegetable oils they really need to be called what they are they they are industrial seed oils they're not vegetable oils you know vegetable sounds good and healthy but that's not what they are it's so true vegetable is a marketing term it is absolutely Yes, that's all it is. And so these uh, these foods, the fats really uh, were being demonized at the same time as we now had this promotion of highly processed wheat flour yes. and lots of cheap sugar starting to flood the market. So, uh, and of and, course and we had all these. Well, uh, along with that came the manufacture of artificial vitamins. And yes. In fact, industrial agriculture would not be possible without these vitamins because animals would die. And then they got the idea, well, let's add these vitamins to these processed foods. We'll put back in what we took out, and then they'll be okay. And truly, they are. there are lots of people in your field and in the food processing field who truly believe this. We can process the food, we can add back in the vitamins, and then everything's okay, and we can feed the world. And so true, Sally. No, yeah, and there's no concept of this synergy that you were talking about. It's very reductionist. It so is. I've sat in the meetings. I've sat at the table with you know those dreadful hydrogenated cooking fats at, at, a, at a time of in my life when I did not yet know what mm-hmm. I needed to know and so I was as indoctrinated as everybody else and that is exactly the discussion that went on around me you know should we well maybe we'll put vitamin A and vitamin D uh, into this fat maybe we'll put this vitamin in here and that vitamin in there and no real discussion about the fact that the reason for this is that the foods are denatured they're not yes. whole foods anymore and in fact they're dangerous it's, yes it's, 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 they're it's, more it's, than it's, denatured yeah you know there's about 800 types of vitamin d and when you eat a real food with vitamin d in it like egg yolks uh, you're getting something much different than the vitamin D3 that's added to margarine. And so, again, it's, it's just not quite the same. Uh, one of the things I laugh at, though, they say you can't get vitamin D from food. I don't know if you've heard this, but we have to put it in yeah. the milk or you take your vitamin D capsules, but you can't get it from food. And that begs the question, if you can't get it from food, why do they think they have to add it to butter, for example? Yeah, because exactly we, right. We used to get it from butter, and we also got lots of vitamin D from lard. Lard's a wonderful source of vitamin D. And uh, that's just, you know, it's just false that we can't get vitamin D from food. I've had this debate uh, in the room with people talking about brands connected to milk where everybody at the table was 100% certain that milk never could provide you with any vitamin D, No, thus no dairy products could ever provide you with vitamin D. And it, it was really surprising how indoctrinated very intelligent people were about the notion that vitamin D doesn't naturally occur in and that, yeah. such foods. And let me just be a little technical here. The kind of vitamin D that you'd find in milk and in butterfat is the activated vitamin D. It's the vitamin D that you look for when you're testing people's blood. 
which is not right. the kind of vitamin D, say, in egg yolks. But it would be the type of vitamin D in milk and butter because those foods are made out of blood. Blood goes through the mammary glands. Yeah. Basically, it's the raw material for making milk. So the kind of vitamin D you'd find in milk and butter would be the activated form. And when they do tests in the laboratory for vitamin D in foods, they don't look for that form. So they can say there's no vitamin D in butter. Uh, that's so interesting. I had I had no idea about that. I've been familiar with the vitamin D2 versus D3 and the preference for vitamin D3 if you need to supplement. But uh, I didn't realize there were so many hundreds of kinds of mm. vitamin D out there in the foods, I presume. In the foods. Actually, I, I misspoke. I said, I think, 800, but I just looked up a new reference and it's over a thousand uh, oh my types goodness. of vitamin D. Yes, I mean... You know, you might need 98% D3 and 2% all these other forms. Yeah. That's what you get in processed food. I think what's really important about the uh, the notion of buying foods in the supermarket versus, say, going to a market, and we know that a lot of people just don't have access at the moment to to nice healthy organic markets or or they don't have the money to purchase things yes. there so they're stuck with what's available in the supermarket but the supermarkets are curating what the general population yes. get to eat and this is a very worrisome thing at the moment um because that that curating is not based on any inbuilt desire on behalf of supermarket companies to provide anybody with good nutrition their interest is in maximizing profitability they go by the you know they they go by the inch of of shelf space and how much profitability they could get out of it and and shelf life is really one of the major drivers of that and the the longer the shelf life in general the less nutrition you're likely to be getting right out of a given product long shelf life short human life (laughs) <laughs> That's a good saying. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, but you know, we right now we have the mechanisms to go back to do, do a kind of happy medium between having to hunt and prepare all your own food or going to the supermarket, and that's what I would say is the farm store. Uh, where you get things directly from the farmer or he delivers them to you or you have a food group where they're brought into a drop point or something like that. And this is the way in the future that we will be getting our food. The the markets will be much smaller, they'll carry far fewer products and they will be healthy products. Well, I'm really keen to promote to people out there who you know are shopping for food on a weekly basis to if you're stuck with the supermarket start start to look at the particular items that you're buying you know i know when i started uh, altering the foods that i was purchasing it because it's very stressful because yes you, at first yeah at first it's very stressful because you 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 just don't know you know you can't spend all day in the supermarket Uh, reading labels and a lot of people are stuck reading labels even though we know that the best foods don't have labels Labels on them at all but the fact is a lot of people are going to be stuck buying things with labels and what I encourage people to do is to pick one thing and make that thing dairy or make it the meat you buy make it one of the staple foods and track down the best supply that you can and go out of your way to get that one thing and make that right because eventually you this is a marketing term and marketers do this all the time marketers habituate people so we Uh we get people to uh to develop new neuron paths when you start a new activity it's always a little bit difficult because you don't actually have a neuron path for that so marketers very consciously get habituate you they make they try to make you do an action a number of times and once you've done that the neuron paths are forming and it just becomes easier and easier until it it's the easiest thing it's the easiest choice for you to make because you are now totally habituated and the term habituated is in all uh consumer packaged goods uh strategies the habituation is there 
Yes. You know, I, I think to be fair, uh, we need to talk about some of the good things that modern technology has brought us. Um, well, I certainly like to buy from my local farmers. To me, it's a miracle. I can go into our health food store and buy a pineapple any time of the year, or I can buy rice, you know? Yes. And I, of course, I buy brown organic rice. But whether this technology is good or bad really depends on how we use it. And I, for one, don't want to go back to the days where I can only get vegetables in the summer and I can't ever get lemons because they don't grow in my area. Exactly. So there are some good, good things that have happened. And, and another really good thing that's happened with technology is that everybody has salt. And in the yes. old days, salt, really, the availability of salt determined a lot of things. It determined where you lived, for one thing. And, and, the, and there's going to be a turnaround, I believe, in the next few years, Sally, in which salt is going to stop being demonized. I hope I so. Think, I think we're moving into a world where recognition that salt is essential for life and yes. good salt as opposed to yes. the horrible industrial refined salts, yeah. which are not yeah. great. We figured out how to ruin our salt. Just like we figured out how to ruin everything else, but and it was all about of, shelf life. <laughs> well, and I think uh, the idea was you take these valuable minerals out of the salt and you can sell them separately as mineral supplements. So, right. yeah. or we just make the salt look white so it looks pure and clean. And, and pure looks, and clean has been is a huge marketing thing. It's, mm -hmm. uh, there's hardly a brand discussion that I've had over 30 years where the notions of pure and clean haven't come in to that discussion. Pure mm -hmm. and clean are huge driving forces yes. in the yes. way we market. And you can go all the way back to Crisco uh, to that, the way in which it was marketed as being pure and clean. It was a lovely white looking fat. Yes. They put, they wrapped paper around the tin, I think to make it look, sort of almost as if it was fresh from some kind of a farm yeah. environment. Right. Right. And it was spreadable. That was the other thing. You and could take it out of the – well, you didn't have to put it in the fridge, and it was spreadable. Yeah. So would you say, uh, just to sort of, um, sort of start landing the thoughts, what, what do you think were the sort of major uh, processed foods coming into the 20th century that hit – uh, the stores and what became the supermarkets that really have negatively affected our health? Well, first of all, is sugar. And that has a long history. I mean, the sugar was being processed from the 1500s. You know, Queen Elizabeth didn't smile because her teeth were black from sugar. Right. So, and then they discovered that if you put sugar in foods, they would have a long shelf life because nothing will grow in the presence of a lot of sugar. So right. it doesn't support micro, microbial life, so why would it support your life, you know? So sugar was certainly number one. And then secondly were the industrial fats and oils. And then everything else comes on top of that. MSG was a, a very important discovery for the food manufacturers because then they could take – they could start doing frozen dinners and soups, canned soups and things like that, which would taste horrible without the MSG. They'd taste – bland and I mean there's no way that you would eat them but the MSG gives it that uh, meaty flavor and yeah. then they could start to do those types of foods. Uh, high fructose uh, corn syrup of course is of course. another one <laughs> and that's fairly recent but and then there's you know there's a lot of new ways of preserving foods that are sort of like semi-canning where they take some of the water out and they have a certain temperature um, in our supermarkets, we're seeing these little squeezable tubes of baby food done this way. It was Aren't just they upsetting? Totally disgusting. Totally yes. disgusting. And just from an see, environmental impact in terms of the packaging, oh they're dreadfully upsetting. Yeah, and then there's certain meats now. They're doing this with sort of sausage sticks and things like that so that they don't have to refrigerate them. And the right. aseptic packaging, you know, they don't need to put – uh, UHT milk in the refrigerator compartments. They do it right. because people won't buy it otherwise. But they could stand it in a display on the floor if they wanted to. 
Absolutely right. Well, and they they do in a lot of places stand the UHT milk out on the floor, and uh, it, it, a lot of people are attracted by the fact that it has this. Your people have been indoctrinated to believe that long storage life is a good thing as well, because they are disconnected from the idea that nutrition is involved in the foods that they buy. Yes, isn't it amazing? how so few people actually make this connection. They make it with animals. They know that animals need vitamins and all these things, but they don't make it with people. And yeah, uh, even really right. smart people with PhDs and, you know, doctorates and things. And you, you talk to them about this and they look at you like you're crazy. It's absolutely true. And, and yet at the same time, the same people will go out and buy supplements to supplement often to supplement themselves while eating denatured food although uh, the fact is of course that a lot of the farm soils are now so destroyed that uh, we can't really get the mineral content that we need out of those soils so the the whole discussion of putting nutrition back into food in my opinion has to go back to the soil and back to farming practice and the husbandry well, and this, of the land. Yes, and this, of course, is where we get into the effect of industrialization of agriculture. And that really started after the Second World War, started to be developed during the Second World War. And this made s- supply chains much more convenient for people who were in this industry. And we put the animals in feedlots or you know, confinement. Right. And, again, that, that causes a real drop in the um, – vitamin and mineral levels and of course they have to use antibiotics or arsenic or something like that now people are starting to be disgusted with this system and we do have a renaissance going on of people wanting to buy directly from small farmers who are raising their animals outdoors and this this will just grow and grow and i use i love it love it (laughs) natural selection of the wise because ultimately (laughs) Processed foods lead to infertility. We're already seeing this, huge infertility. Absolutely. And the people who don't have the wisdom to choose real foods, to buy from farmers and so forth, they will die out. That's the way nature deals with things like this. So I call that the natural selection of the wise. Absolutely. And uh, further to the point on industrial agriculture, there's this general belief that we need industrial agriculture to feed the people of the the world. world. But it's not true. 70% of the world's people at this moment are not being fed by industrial agriculture. They're being fed by non-industrial agriculture. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, um, I also, um, I think it's a fault that the population is expanding and expanding. You know, they use this number seven million people, seven billion people. But I read something recently that there's actually under four billion people, and that the numbers of people are rapidly declining. And this is How exactly what you would expect. And what do you want? Do you want a expanding population that's taking care of the earth and you know doing all kinds of wonderful things, or do you want a, um, a decreasing population? Well, certainly what we're going to have and what we're seeing has been the increase in ill health in populations across the world. And as far as I can see, and certainly what this project is about, is that the supermarket is ground zero of an awful lot of what is going on. And if we can find ways and talk through it and begin to heal that, process begin to show people where they can go to get better choices in nutrition and also how they can flex their muscles at supermarkets because supermarkets want to make money if they can every time you spend a dollar the market slightly adjusts to the spend that you're making exactly and and yes small changes in consumer buying habits can have huge effect on these markets Right. The supermarkets are rolling around. They're a bit sort of uh, nonplussed at the moment. They're not quite sure how to deal with it. So you have in in the US, you have Farmer Joe's and you have Whole Foods emerging, trying to take, uh, trying to move not 
always authentically, in my opinion, but trying to move into that space of providing real nutrition for people. So that, that, that musculature of the shopper who's spending their dollar is hopefully a part of this project is to help people to understand how you can, how they can flex their muscles, how the choices that they're making are going to have a really big impact on what's available in the supermarket, not just for them, but for the people around them. So, um, and their families. You know, you may be able to answer this question for me. I've been trying to find out what the profit margin is for the food industry on butter versus what the profit margin is on margarine or a spread. I would really like to know what percentage of profit they make on these two products. I can tell you that the profit profitability is linked very much to whether or not you're a large corporation mm-hmm. and the uh, the kind of deal you can cut with the supermarket versus whether you're a small company. So if you're a small dairy, for instance, yeah. selling butter, straight away the deal you cut with that supermarket is never going to be as good. But the biggest yeah. profitability in the whole chain goes to the supermarket. So it doesn't go to the corporation who produces the margarine or to the farmer who produces the butter or or their manufacturing arm it goes to the supermarket so in general supermarkets it's not this it's not identical everywhere but sort of in a as a rule of thumb a third to a half of the price of something you buy in a supermarket is going to the supermarket and everybody else in the chain of supply has oh. has to be paid out of what's left right oh, and, interesting and the soup because the supermarket takes such a big chunk and because the supermarket is always advertising to everyone about their low prices because low prices is where they all like to sit. That price pressure isn't actually on the supermarket. The price pressure goes back down the chain of supply and what it does is it reduces the quality of the ingredients that are going into that product in the first place. It's one of the reasons I think why the dairy industry pushed so hard against raw milk and against real dairy products because they just know that that in price terms, once the supermarket margins are added on, if we saw the real price of dairy, yes, we would be shocked. And people have become yeah. used to this this denatured uh, holographic version of what would have yeah. been dairy uh, that's got no nutrition and no life in it. Yeah, and as a we, result. We said- we sell raw milk for $12 a gallon, and I know farmers who are selling it for $24 a gallon yeah. and, and selling everything. And I do think one of the things that people need to accept is that they, if they want to eat real food, it's going to cost more. Now, in, It I, should I cost more. It yeah. should cost more. Yes. And I think it was in, uh, let's just say, 1960, uh, people spent... Uh, 18% of their budget on food and 6% on medical. Well, now they're spending much less on food, but their medical uh, is no savings because the medical costs have gone up. So uh, don't think that you're going to save money by eating cheap food because you will pay in medical costs, lost productivity, uh, problems with your children, and probably a lower income because you're dealing with illness. Yet quality of life, if you pay the extra money for good nutrition, your quality of life in general is going to be so much better. And yes. in fact, that as again, it's a marketing term is share of wallet. What the share of uh-huh. the wallet has is has been shifted out of food mm-hmm. and it has been shifted into, certainly in the States, into things such as um, medical care, I won't call it health care, into yes. medical care. It's been shifted into house prices. It's been yes. shifted into all sorts of other areas of the economy and mm-hmm. out of food, which is where a lot of it should be. Yes, yes. And, you know, we as a, we as farmers, we don't get – any subsidies, we don't get any help, uh, our insurance costs are higher, and and so forth. And that's one thing people have to learn is that it is going to cost more uh, to eat this way. Well, and I, I think sort of to as a final point, what I want to say is that 
brands which were invented uh, to create a, a manufactured person to replace your natural relationship with the people who were growing the food that yes. you were purchasing. Um, brands are going to be here for quite a while, but that shoppers, can, and I don't like to use the term consumers, so uh, it's derogatory, uh, shoppers need to actually develop more meaningful relationships with the brands because there are real people behind small brands and they can connect with those people they can start to understand the uh the food chain that they're a part of and really understand that when they're supporting particularly small local growers small local products that are even if that's a bakery or if it's a if it's a dairy or whatever and they all all have a brand that they're trying to build that support them the brand yes. enables you to easily identify it you yes. can build a relationship with that and over time hopefully we can start to put human relationships back where where these big uh inhuman brands uh, have sat for a century or more uh, yeah. taking the place of real humanity. And by the way, one very good way of finding these types of food producers is to contact the nearest local chapter of the Weston A. Price Foundation. We have almost 600 chapters worldwide. Uh, so you go to westonaprice.org and click on find local chapter and uh, you will find the person who's producing raw milk or pastured eggs, very often you'll find an already created and organized food co-op or food group that is, um, you can go online and order and pick up your food every two weeks or something like that. So we've already done a lot of the work to get us out of this supermarket system. That's so, that's just fantastic. I, actually, I can't recommend highly enough to people who are listening to this discussion that you go to the Western A Price Foundation and look at what they have to tell you, learn more about nutrition and find those food producers that are around you. Because as, as Sally is saying here, a lot of that work has been done for you. It's a lot easier than you think it is. Uh, and you can start just one step at a time to heal the your own nutrition in your own life. And then on the occasions when you are in the supermarket having to buy something, you can start to flex your muscles more powerfully in terms of what choices you're making. And that will start to change the environment around you. You're a lot more powerful than you think you are. Sally, yes, I, yes. I want to thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's, it's just such a joy to talk to someone who is so deeply knowledgeable on this subject. And I, I can't think of a better way to have kicked off this discussion <laughs> for reinventing the supermarket. So thank you so much. And all of the details about Sally and uh, the Western A Price Foundation will be on the page. I encourage everybody to click on those links and follow through and actually make some personal changes in your life and flex your muscles. Thank you, Sally. Thank you for having me, Melody. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and the this supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket.